Welcome everyone to episode two, season one of the Superior Sales Disruption Podcast, which is brought to you by our media partner, Retail World, Australia's premier publication for the grocery and FMCG industry. As will be the case throughout, I am joined uh, by Mark Trulson uh, down in Melbourne. How are you? How are you today, Mark? I'm really great, Jamie, and I'm really pumped to interview James Lane with you. To have James as our first guest following an illustrious career at Coca-Cola is something I know will be really valuable for our listeners. What are you looking forward to? Mate, uh, well, James is someone that I've admired for a long time. Uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing his backstory and where he came from um, and just to understand the landscape of the you know, sales directors and uh, you know, the disruptions that will be part of his career. So, uh, And obviously on a personal level, uh, in launching Vitamin Water for Amatil uh, back in 2008, um, you know, wanting to hear about that. So uh, looking forward to it. Fantastic, mate. So without further ado, James Lane. Welcome, Mr. James Lane, uh, who's had an, uh, an illustrious career with uh, the Coca-Cola Amateur Company and, uh, and is the former sales director of CCA. So welcome, James. Good morning. It's uh, great to be here, Jamie. Thank you. James, um, I'd like to also, uh, Mark, uh, obviously down in Melbourne, um, we've been looking forward to this interview with uh, James. Uh, obviously, uh, he's got an amazing career in the FMCG industry, which obviously is going to be starting some new chapters with in the coming months. But Mark, um, anything that you, where would you like to start and what do you think we'd like the listeners would like to hear about James's backstory? I think we should start from uh, way back at the, the beginning, uh, as in all good stories. And James, uh, where did you grow up and... Uh, and more importantly, sort of where did you go to school and uh, what were the things that you learned from that? Yeah, thanks, Mark. Um, well, I actually come from Perth. So I, um, I was born in Perth. I actually spent the first seven years of my life living in Melbourne, with, uh, following my father around, working for the ANZ Bank. So I grew up uh, in a corporate family and, and uh, he was a very hard worker. So I got that uh, from him. Um, I went to um, a high school called Hale School, which is uh, you know, one of the seven private schools in, in Perth um, and then to UWA uh, from there. Um, while I was studying, I, I was working for Maya in uh, selling uh, stereos and TV, uh, which is where I got my sales training from. Uh, and then at the end of that, I realised I didn't want to be a scientist and uh, moved into <laughs> a company, Surf, which uh, was a small, wasn't, it wasn't actually owned by Coca-Cola at the time, but was basically the Coke vending business at the time and a year into that role they got bought out by CCA and uh, I came over with with that particular business and 26 years later I was um, still working for CCA. Fantastic. Did you find that uh, that gave you um, some some sort of street skill selling one for a better word um, old, old school selling? Yeah so uh, first of all from a Frito-Lay point of view um, we were actually the full service vending company so we had um, Smiths and, and coffee. Um, we'd only just sold Smiths as a company um, in that year, which uh, was ninety six. Uh, yeah, um, ninety three. So um, yeah, got a lot of experience um, very early age in terms of getting contracts, in terms of the uh, rough and tumble of of the vending industry, because obviously there's a lot of small providers out there that. Are, um, willing to put it, sort of break a lot of rules or do what it takes to get the business. So, yeah, it was a very uh, it was a small company, and therefore you did everything from fix the machines to uh, deliver them to fill them. So it was a fantastic learning opportunity. You moved over to from Perth. You went to where? Yeah. So in terms of the um, probably the biggest opportunity that was thrown my way was back in '96. So I was about three years into the role, and uh, the uh, the Olympics was coming up in 2000. 
and they decided to send a small group of people over to Atlanta to uh, to go and study and work in Atlanta. So um, I got put up from Perth as uh, <coughs> as uh, the opportunity to to go for that role. Uh, went to some interviews here in Sydney. So first of all, got pretty excited about being flown to head office to do the interviews uh, as a young guy, and then got picked in this team of six to go to Atlanta uh, and work over in Atlanta for six months. So if it, if it had to be a, a turning point in my career to to say was sort of the, the ultimate highlight. Uh, it was it was that particular opportunity um, as a Perth boy to go to, to Atlanta. I had to basically resign from my job in Perth to go there. Um, when we got back, uh, there was nothing to do because um, Sydney was four years away and what we had actually learned over there was that we didn't need four years to get ready, which, which the Americans had told us we would. Um, so I packed up my backpack and, and basically uh, flew to Sydney um, drove out to Northmead and said, I'm here. Uh, what do you want me to do? So uh, I suppose in terms of an opportunity in my career path, it was the biggest one and also the scariest one because I, I packed up from home and, and headed to the big smoke. So, um, And that was the beginning of the, the next part of my, my career. So how long did it sort of take you uh, to go from there to sort of start managing a team? And, and with that, what is your philosophy on building and sustaining a great team? Yeah, look, it didn't take that long. Um, I moved over. Um, I was already a manager back in Perth, managing the, uh, the, uh, the driver teams in the vending business. So when I moved to Sydney, I moved back and uh, took a step back and, and repped for a while. Uh, and within a couple of years, I'd moved up into, into management and then moved quite quickly into head office. So by 1999, I was uh, working in head office in, in national accounts. And um, I think I learned during that period of time, obviously managing drivers, I learned uh, what it's like to manage some of the, I suppose, least educated and more um, militant um, types of employees through to um, managing key account managers who are obviously uh, um, already educated and, and uh, quite articulate and you needed to give them the resources and the, and the planning skills to, to uh, make the most of it. So I think a combination of managing both blue collar and white collar uh, salespeople gave me a good foundation for, for going forward. Having having a whole heap of van drivers is definitely a lot of fun. So they, uh, you know, they're a little bit more um, what I would call uh, the old school mentality in the sales game that uh, um, that I had the experience of working with uh, in the snack food industry, being an old cash van driver. So uh, it's uh, it, they're a different breed. And uh, then you've moved over to the office environment and. And how did you find that transition? Did you find that uh, that was more suited to you or, or, or and, and what did you like about that? Yeah, look, I, I, I was probably more of a, um, I went, <coughs> went through university and private school, so I was probably well suited to the, to the uh, key account management from the start. So I think it was a good opportunity for me to spend some time with the drivers, uh, filling machines, getting all that sort of grounding in, in what actually made the business tick. Uh, and then transferring back into head office, I suppose it's helped set me up for the rest of my career where I really understood how our business worked right from um, selling to the customer, delivering the stock, the cash all the way through to um, account management contracts. So if I look back over my career now, <clears throat> one of the um, things that people do say to me is I'm, I've, I've got the ability to see um, from beginning to end of the business and how it actually works. And therefore, when you set about uh, reorganising the business, um, you actually know um, where it's working, where it's not working. So you, you talked about Atlanta being such a, a beacon for you. What other sort of career highlights have you had in the ensuing years post that? And probably particularly for the audience, what were some of your lowlights? I think uh, 
the Olympics was the first opportunity I had to, to, to take a big leap. And I learned from that that when you, the first thing you should do is get yourself some good mentors, people that you really trust. Uh, and when they come to you and say, I want you to go and do something, it might sound really stupid, um, but you, um, and you have the right to ask them why. But uh, in most cases, um, you should just take that opportunity and, and, and learn from it. So, um, so coming on from moving to Sydney, I then uh, moved into head office and uh, I had a debt to pay. I had to um, go and do the Sydney Olympics just for a little bit of time. So I went back and did that, which put me out of work again. Um, so my boss at the time, uh, Pat Malloy, uh, who anyone who knows the Coke system would know Pat, he, he said, I want you to move up to Queensland. I want to um, basically create a new role in Queensland for a general sales manager. Uh, and so I want you to move your family uh, up to Queensland. So I went, okay, went home and told my wife that we're moving again. Uh, and then um, coming up from that, uh, probably the ultimate job of all time. So uh, I then got the opportunity to return back to WA in uh, 2003. Um, so seven years after I left with my backpack as the general manager for Western Australia. So uh, I had uh, had left WA and then come back um, to, to run the state that I that I grew up in, uh, which was a fantastic opportunity. Unfortunately, four and a half years after that role, um, at 37, I had uh, fulfilled that ambition. So I had to um, move back to Sydney and, and um, go through an, another group, a lot of change as well. But probably the, the um, career highlight was returning back to Perth to, to run my own state. And that would have been uh, so a move for the family as well. So back then, uh, so they've already moved a few times and now they're going back home. So... Yeah, so look, a bit of a, bit of a story there, Jamie. Like, I know you like yeah. a story. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> we love a story, don't yeah. we, Mark? We certainly do. I've managed to move, I've got three children. I've managed to move three times uh, interstate while my wife has been pregnant. Um, so, I've got three children born in three different states. Um, Very and, popular. And each time I've basically been given a new job that started tomorrow. So, I've. Uh, <laughs> my bags and gone to start the new job while my wife while pregnant has uh, sold the house packed it up and and moved to the new state yeah, so I've got the, that's the, rem i'm reminded of that quite regularly but now you're now you're paying back your dues you're dropping uh, the kids off at school and uh getting a bit of family time so yeah so the um i've referred to my 26 years at cca so uh, i've i um during the last restructure i uh, offered myself up for redundancy uh having Spent three and a half years as a sales director and 26 years at CCA. So uh, it's been a great opportunity for a career break. And, um, and during that career break, yeah, I've been uh, doing all the things I haven't been able to do all that regularly, like drop the kids off to school, go to the, uh, go to the speech nights and go to all the, the um, things that you miss um, through, through the career when you're travelling. Uh, and the and the missus isn't kicking you out yet. She's uh, happy to have you home or? Oh, look, probably a little bit too happy to have me home. So I'm... Uh, <laughs> I, uh, my search for new opportunities is quite active at the moment. And uh, we will touch on, obviously, your, your new direct direction and your new journey moving forward a little bit later, but uh, an illustrious career, as I said, uh, at CCA. And um, yeah, what were, were there any lowlights through that process that you look back on and uh, that you may, you know, be able to, you know, advise to others if they are in that, in that situation? Look, there was... Very few, to be honest. I had um, a lot of different opportunities that seemed to come to me every three to four years, uh, which never made me feel like I had to leave the organisation for opportunities, um, which has been fantastic. But I think the lowlights that did come 
um, a little bit regularly near the end, were really aware there was uh, politics um, restructures. No one particularly likes, everyone loved, likes a business that's growing. And I think for the first 20 years of my career at CCA, we were a growing business. We were one that were um, acquiring other businesses. We had categories that were growing naturally. It was very positive. We have been through four or five years of restructuring, of, of downsizing. Um, there's been some fairly famous um, changes of managing director and CEO that, that uh, have destabilized. So I think just all that together can probably, would probably be the low light. Um, it's, it's not a, you know, none of it's enough to, to feel that you didn't enjoy working there. Um, but certainly, um, yeah, there were, there were times there where it was reasonably tough. So there was certainly some personal disruption there. In terms of, I mean, I look at uh, the beverage category in general, and uh, one of the things, Jamie, and I always remark is that, you know, you look back 20 years, if you went into a 7-Eleven, you know, three doors would be CCA, mainly, you know, the, the soft drinks. If you have a look at the last 20 years, there's been energy, there's been water, there's been kombucha, there's been vitamin water. You know, can you tell us a time where you were really proud about being part of a sort of a sales disruption? Yeah, I think, uh, I think you're exactly right. I think um, over my career, the, the biggest thing that's changed has been the consumer. Um, they've, they've moved away from being brand loyal um, to, to trying lots of different things. They've also moved away from sugar and fat to, to health. And it's not just a soft drink issue, it's you know, affecting the beer industry, it's affecting um, pretty much every industry. So if you look at any industry, you've got growth in premium, you've got growth in value, you've got movements away from established brands to, 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 to new brands and people willing to try different things. So certainly there's been a fragmentation. Um, equally, some of these categories that, that have opened up, I think the Coke system, uh, including the Coke company, have been a bit slow globally to get behind them. Um, and quite often we've been starting a decade or two decades late. So I think one of the probably biggest uh, things I've been involved in in the industry was what we refer to as Mother 2. Um, it was our relaunch. It was our seventh attempt to get into the energy category. Uh, the one had been a screaming failure, had been an unbelievable launch. Uh, unfortunately, the product tasted terrible. So. I think what we learned from that is when it requires consumption, it's probably good to, that it tastes good. So we learned that from Mother One. But uh, Mother Two, uh, we, we entered it. Um, we were studying overseas markets and had seen Monster launch in a large can with a value proposition. And it's probably the first category that CCA entered into with a uh, completely different way of going to market. It was a low-cost launch. It was a, in a completely different package than what the industry was currently consuming at a different price point. And, um, and today we, we have volume leadership in that category in grocery and, uh, and Mother's uh, the only brand when Monster took over the Coke energy portfolio globally, Mother was the only brand that they retained in any country around the world. So um, that, was, uh, that was a good credit to the people involved. So just building on that, how is um, CCA how do they deal with the fact that, you know, their mainstay being, you know, Coke sugar um, was being attacked on all fronts? And did that cause alarm bells? I mean, did, was there a time where you thought this is quite overwhelming and, and a disruption that may we may not be able to overcome? No, I think, I think it was never any feeling that it couldn't be overcome. I think um, you've got to attack it on all different fronts. You've got to uh, look at how to get people to keep consuming uh, uh, 
cola or, or, or soft drinks, um, maybe not in the same volumes, but maybe in different occasions or different packages, at the same time as entering into the new categories that are growing. Uh, and then also looking at the cost structure of your business, because some of those categories aren't as profitable as the ones that you're in. So particularly when there's more, when you're later to that category or there's lots of different providers, it can be at a different margin to the one where you're the market leader. So another good example would be we launched Coke Zero, which would have been the biggest uh, launch of my career. Um, and although it's a, a bit of an obvious thing now, back at the time, uh, it was seen as being a very big and different thing to help transition people out of um, drinking sugared Coke into a, a non-sugared variety. Diet Coke had been launched 10 years earlier um, and was mainly female skewed. So this was more of a male focused drink. And on top of that, we've obviously got waters like uh, Mount Franklin um, and on top of that launched sparkling waters and, and even recently in the last few months, we've acquired some businesses with ownership of kombucha and, and, uh, and fruit juices. So the company is continuing to, to evolve its portfolio to make sure it matches uh, all consumer needs. And um, well, obviously one of the ones that we, uh, our roads crossed paths many years ago, uh, James, was the Glasso Vitamin Water launch. It was quite a, quite a disruptive launch. If I look back on the way that CCA uh, launched products back then with the largest field force in the country to use a third party to go out there and literally uh, cut in, sell the story on the Vitamin Water story. How did, how did, in terms of... Obviously, the Glasso team that came over from the US, how do you think that changed um, or assisted in that product and was there anything you could take away from that? Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting case study to, to go back over because uh, where, where our business was at its absolute best was when scale matched uh, the brand. So yep. when we launched uh, Coke Zero, it was... Um, you know, the, the biggest brand with the biggest sales force launching the biggest new product uh, in the decade. So perfectly matched to us. What we didn't do very well was taking our eye off our current customers and our current portfolio to launch small well and to incubate well. So we learned over the years that sometimes it was better to take a small team off to the side or even leverage third party like, like yourselves at the time um, to do some segmentation to target a particular market uh, and then almost uh, under the cover of darkness, go and uh, launch a category into your own coolers or into your own customers without disrupting your, your sales force who are focused on 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 bigger. Um, so that was what we we did in that particular case. It was a, a segmented launch that we learnt from the from the launch in New York. Um, what we what we did learn was um, probably uh, unfortunately there was already competitors in the market. It, uh, we probably needed to be a bit more in the middle between niche and scale um, and go a bit faster. But um, at the time, it was a great learning. Um, it was a long time ago. It's probably common practice now to look at demographics and to look at uh, the con consumption of a particular product and, and really tailor down where you want to launch the product. It's, it's pretty much common practice now, but at the time, it was cutting edge and, yeah. uh, and we learned a lot from it. Yeah, no, it was indeed. And... Uh, um some of your mentors along that journey, James, um, is there any, is there any um, advice that you've been given over the years that you look back on and, and it's still something that resonates with you that you still, you can hear in the, in the back of your, in the back of the head there and the, you know, when you're going through decisions in your life? Yeah, look, Jamie, um, I had the benefit of, of uh, recently um, resigning and, and giving a uh, farewell speech a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So it got me, 
the opportunity to reflect back over my career. And there was a couple of individuals who stood out. I, I was lucky enough to uh, work for 10 years between um, 2000, 2010 with Terry Davis being the, the CEO, Pat Malloy, uh, sales director and Warwick White as CMD. And, and very few companies now that would have a one, two and three um, in, in the same roles for 10 years um, guiding the business. So it was fantastic to be able to be moved between different roles um, by those three. And each of them gave me different advice. Terry um, was famously, you know, he's famously a very strategic and, and uh, commercial person and, and taught me a lot about uh, how he made tough decisions around acquisitions or, or um, any commercial decision. Uh, Warwick White was a fantastic people leader and, and taught us all about leadership and engagement. Um, also, when I was running WA, he came over and said his best job was ever, he'd ever had was running Ireland. And the good thing about running Ireland was that the English who he reported to never came over and he could do pretty much what he wanted to and he wanted me to do the same thing in WA. So it was great that um, I always knew when they were coming because I had to book three months in advance. Uh, and it was a great opportunity to take a risk. And Pat, who was my boss, uh, really taught me about working with customers and building long-term relationships with customers. And you can win small battles with customers, but to win the war, you really have to build long-term relationships and long-term strategies. So Pat was the ultimate customer guy and, and, and taught me a lot about that. James, uh, one question I'd like, love to ask is we've heard some great stories so far uh, of a career that's spanned over 25 years. So if you could go back in time and give yourself a, a young man and you impose some advice. Uh, what, what sort of advice would you give? Uh, you know, getting into the the competitive FMCG industry. Thanks, Mark. I'll, look, I didn't. There's not much of my career that I uh, look back on with any regret. So a lot of it would be um, to basically do what I did. So I think take a risk um, and and trust your mentors. So I've, I discovered that um, I suppose by accident. So if I had the opportunity to talk to myself, it would be to uh, make sure I did that um, and. You know, move to from Perth to Sydney and and take all those other roles that were given to me, because obviously people who've been around for a while can see more than you can see. So I think it's very good to make sure that you do tap into some people who have been around a bit longer or been higher in the organisation, and they can give you some advice. And I'd also say that um, you know move for opportunity, um, but don't jump too early. So I see a lot of people in organisations who don't get a job who then throw in the towel and go and move and they jump around and they probably don't progress with purpose. So I would say that you have to also have a little bit of confidence in that it will come and to and to wait your time. So I see people, very talented people, uh, move around between organisations very quickly. Uh, you, you interview a lot of people who have had 20-odd uh, jobs of about a year in length and, and you wonder what's going on there. So I'd, I'd make sure that people did take those opportunities but took some time to consider what were the best roles for them to do for their career. I, I really love the word risk because to me that's disruption. Um, so the fact that, again, you're in a... Too many people are in a comfort zone. They're living in a... You know, you're in general manager of WA, your dream job, you've gone back for. And even though, you know, you mightn't look at it that's probably one of the biggest decisions you made in your career path because you really turned your world upside down again and your, fa and, you know, and your family uh, and disrupted it by saying, yep, I'm going to take that job. I'm going to go back to Sydney and take on that mantra to, 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 to lead the, 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 the opportunity that you're asked to come back here for. So to me, that's, 
really mark that's disruption in its purest form because it's not just a corporate it's it's personal disruption that you're putting yourself through which is what makes careers successful in the industry and, and i think uh i mean you talked about what you would process you'd go through and deciding what product you might go into to disrupt it's the same for your career as well so in my point of view i'd been four and a half years in the role it's the biggest role in Perth in FMCG and, and really doesn't exist today even in that regard. Back then, there was a big line role and there was a big CV role. None of those are there anymore. So um, at you know my mid-30s, uh, it was pretty clearly pointed out to me that if I reset my career and came back to Sydney and um, did something completely different, I could then um, head off on a different path and, and that's exactly what's happened. In terms of uh, just your the last role that you had at CCA being the sales director, how have you seen that that role has changed uh, over the time? Yeah, so the sales director role last three and a half years, probably group it with the um, retail director role where I was managing um, convenience and, and grocery uh, for the four and a bit years previous. So basically from from about the time that um, John Durkin arrived in Australia, um, I think that what we've seen, unfortunately, um, when I say unfortunately for us salespeople, we've seen um, some slowdown in, in terms of uh, price, in terms of margin, uh, in terms of consumption. So in my particular industry, uh, we had uh, deflation matched with um, absolute volume declines, um, pretty similar to the beer industry. And um, so over that period of time, we really had to learn how to, to grow profits and to, and to get the business to, to grow uh, with no natural growth in pricing margin or volume. So um, that's probably been the biggest change from managing a, a career, managing a portfolio that, that grew naturally. We all thought we worked really hard for the first 20 years, but the, the last six were, were really, really uh, tough but exciting you learn you learn every day you had to re-educate yourself on revenue management on segmentation on all the things we talk about now as an industry in in terms of uh, ways to grow profits and to to take profit out what's your thoughts on that mark um again coming from a, a liquor background coles and woolies uh, how do you see them at the moment yeah i think uh, i mean liquor was sort of the last bastion of, of of avoiding that situation but you know definitely over the last five years I remember uh, people at uh, CV saying they were immune from the power of Coles and Woolworths, you know, only five, ten years ago because it was only 10, you know, 20% of their business, but it's every other industry and where Coles and Woolworths probably have 70, 80% of CV's business now. So it's, it's happened, uh, you know, globally and worldwide and it's, you know, it is a cycle that's taken a long time, but uh, liquor was the, probably the last one to really be hit by it. I remember Jamie, you know, you know, twenty years ago it used to be fun, <laughs> you know, doing deals with Coles and Woolworths. Whereas it's probably the fun has been taken out. But I think the next cycle, uh, which will rely on growth, will will actually see a return to a bit of fun in, in the deal making. So I think also from CCA's point of view, we're, we were lucky that only fifty percent of our business was in grocery. Yeah. Uh, whereas you know, there's a lot of companies out there where. I've heard of companies having 80% of the business in just one of the two grocery um, com companies, which is pretty scary. So the good thing for CCA is while you're um, balancing your scale with the large grocery customers, you're also able to take your margins and, and grow profitable products within restaurants and cafes and, and uh, all sorts of other industries. So if you're following the consumer and you're providing um, premium products into 
growing industries like restaurants and cafes, then you can uh, balance your margins um, and, and take cost out in, in the grocery by um, you know, looking at more efficient ways to deliver and to um, get the product onto the shelf. And, and really, convenience has sort of gone down a similar road, James, would you say? Like, what's your thoughts on convenience or petrol convenience as a, as a space and channel? Uh, it's become a lot more regimented. It's certainly not as, um, not as uh, freelancing that you used to be able to do at store level. Um, it's much tougher. Yeah. Look, I think convenience is probably the most exciting channel in the whole industry at the moment because if you go back 10 years ago, there were seven... Um, major convenience companies all pretty much doing the same thing. They had a seven-door coal vault that was laid out almost identically and they did pretty much the same combos. Um, you've now got 7-Eleven going down one path. You've got Caltex doing foodery and a whole bunch of uh, food service outlets. You've got uh, Yasser down in South Australia who has got a, uh, a globally unique model. Um, so I think it's a really exciting industry because they're all preparing themselves for when there isn't any petrol. And what about from a people management point of view? Do you see different challenges now than what you had in the past? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the, probably the number one thing that's changed in industry in the last 15 years, is, uh, and you would have seen it in, uh, in alcohol market in the last maybe 10 years, is that it's become very commercial. Um, and particularly if you're fronting a major grocery buyer, um, it's gone away from being state-based relationships. It's gone away from who you know to what you know. So I think the number one thing really is a knowledge of numbers um, and a knowledge of how to put together a category story or a, or a, or a review or a business plan. Um, so I've seen a lot of, I've recruited a lot of people from my commercial team um, across into sales uh, in, in those sorts of channels. Uh, equally in, in channels where it requires a lot of uh, um, cold calling or, or, or finding new business. You, you find that people coming from um, insurance industries or, or people like that are pretty good. So uh, getting, putting the right person into the right uh, role to, to, to um, be successful is, I've found, uh, important as well. It, it has definitely changed, though, in the 20 years, James, because it, it isn't what you know and the networks and the relationships that you had back in the day. It is now all about big data. It is all about category growth. And um, uh, wondering, uh, definitely with some of the customers that we're working with at Superior Sales, uh, in terms of our workshops, uh, we're finding that some of the sales-led um, teams are, have become a little bit too reliant. So this younger generation has become very reliant on the numbers. Um, They've lost a little bit of the art of the storytelling. Uh, they've lost a little bit of the, you know, the uniqueness, the old school sales um, um, process where, you know, it, it was the story about, I mean, obviously Coke is an iconic brand, but there's a lot of story. There's a lot of history and heritage that goes with that, that sometimes, you know, I think that they're just relying on the numbers too much at the moment. And, and we're seeing that and we're trying to, trying to inspire companies to really get back to a bit of core grounding of, 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 of where your story comes from and, and just being true to your brand in that sense. Yes, I understand certainly at a buyer level, it's all going to be about numbers and margin and category growth. But there's a way of, I think that we've lost our way in, in that sense a little bit. And your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think uh, you're exactly right. I think um, you obviously have to know your numbers to be able to pull the story together and to um, decide where you're going to focus, all those sorts of things. And then uh, then you need to create your story and then you need to make it simple. So w whether it be 
selling the business plan internally or whether it be talking to a customer, uh, it might start with a lot of data. There might be a lot of, um, if you're putting a strategic business plan together, you might have three months worth of data focus to be able to pull a one-page PowerPoint presentation together to simply communicate to your sales force. So yeah. it's no different to your customer. It might, it might be grounded in data, but you still need to be able to tell a simple story that's uh, logical and compelling. If you bury the customer in the data, they're going to get bored pretty quick. Yeah. And one thing, uh, one thing, James, that uh, Jamie and I often argue about him being more from sales and myself being more from marketing is that uh, we, we often see with a lot of companies that sales and marketing aren't necessarily joined at the hip in terms of offering an integrated plan. You know, what are your sort of thoughts on that? Oh, look, I think it's, um, I think it's true. Uh, well, I, I probably come from the, uh, the company that sets out at an absolute premium because you have what is basically the marketing department being the coat company and then you have what is the sales department being Amatil. So yep. the interaction between the two um, I've seen in mer- various forms um, and the number one uh, failure would be if you don't get the marketing team into the market enough, if you don't get them in front of the customer enough so that they don't get enough good inputs so that when they come up with their plans, they're not actually grounded in the reality or the problem that you're trying to solve. So that tends to create the disconnect. So if you get any two people um, and you keep them separate and don't share the same insights, they're going to they're going to struggle to work together. So um, I find that the and and I when I when I talk about this, I don't talk about it from ever doing it perfectly. I'm always trying to re-educate myself, but to try and get the coat company or marketing department uh, into the field more, in front of the customer more, so that they're they're grounded in the in the facts that we see every day, so that six months later when they come back to you with a plan that they can talk about that experience that they had or that that market reality that they saw uh, and that you're not trying to rebut them on the day um, with that information. So I see that probably as being the number one thing to to help the two teams to come together and that's spending more time together uh, in the early phases of, of understanding what the opportunities are. Yeah, so we beg to disagree on that one, Mark, but uh, marketers... Uh Marketers do need to get out in the uh, in the real world occasionally and uh, and uh, understand that um, you know what what the, the guys deal with every day out on the streets. But uh, I'm going to be a little bit contentious here and say the other problem we have is turnover. I think so. When you actually have a look at um, that period of time I talked about, where we had people sitting in roles for ten years, um, one of our most successful brands in Amateur is our water portfolio, and we've had a, a marketing um, team focused on water um, for quite some time, same people. Um, whereas a lot of other brands, you have this sort of annual turnover of, of the marketing staff and, and probably the same in sales and, and the customers are now turning over category managers quite quickly as well. So you can waste a lot of time every 12 months with everyone coming up to speed with what's actually happening in the categories and, and, uh, and, and building those relationships. So I'm hoping that the next phase also is to bring a little bit of tenure back into the industry where people are at least doing the same roles for two to three years and they can learn from their mistakes in year one and, and then uh, make two, year two and three really work. Which relates back to your perfect advice a bit earlier about um, um, your advice to a young up-and-comer is don't start, you know, don't be jumping too quickly, yeah. you know. I, I think two and a half to three and a half uh, years is probably the, the right phase, particularly early in your career. If you get... 
quite senior and you're sitting on a job that you really like, you might do it for five to seven years. But I think early in your career, probably two and a half to three and a half is about right. Fantastic. Well, um, I'm going to um, I'm going to jump to something here, uh, James. I don't know if the, well the listeners may not uh, know this about J- uh, James Lane, but uh, uh, he's in the in 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 the height of training for a marathon coming up. Uh, James, your marathon's at uh, Noosa in May. Is that right? Yep. So in May 25, um, we basically picked that date because we were going to go to New Zealand, uh, and it just happened to fall. At the, in the same period of time that my son's doing his HSC. So I was advised by my wife that was unacceptable. <laughs> so uh, we a bit of pressure on ourselves for the training. Um, we uh, picked Noosa on May 25. So um, I think there's about 15 weeks to go. Um, and we're in, we're in good shape at the moment. So. so I don't think too many of our listeners, Mark, would have uh, done a marathon in their life. I certainly can tell you that I haven't, uh, can't testify to doing one. I punch out 5Ks and I'm lucky these days. But... Uh, um, but uh, James, one of the one of the things you mentioned, and I, I'd like you to quickly share because it's an interesting, you know, for me, it's an interesting fact that you know you're building your you're building your run uh, in a tiered tiered way at the moment. So you're running a certain amount of kilometres. Can you share with us a little bit of that training and how it plateaus off? Yeah, look, we were talking a little bit offline about preparing for it. So the, the first thing we did was we downloaded a um, a plan that someone had put together on on the internet, which had a um, a fifteen week training program for a marathon and um and it basically tells you what to do each day and and uh how to build up to it so it's quite interesting how uh you basically build up to 32 k's about five weeks out and then uh plateau back down i'll start to bring it back down and then about two weeks out you're back to five k's 10 k's and get the legs all fresh so um we're going to follow that plan i'll let you know how it goes um (laughs) but uh I ran two halves last year. That's the longest I've run. So I've run a marathon in a year, two mm-hmm. halves. So, and you survived that? I've survived that. So uh, <laughs> we thought we'd join those two together and set the challenge for next year as a marathon. So when I, when I do the 32K uh, training run, it will then be the longest run I've ever done. Uh, we'll see, see how we're feeling then. And uh, yeah, that ties back, I mean, yeah, well, some of you – your purpose and your individual, you know, your mantra and your way. So um, you did mention three years ago, you, you made a decision to, to maybe do a little bit more for James and, and be you know, conscious of how hard you're working and the burnout process that goes with being at your level and, and running businesses. And um, you know, is there anything you can share about your, you know, your particular purpose and your mantra on how to do things? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's a cliche that you often hit a fork in the road. So um, our business was going through some pretty tough times. So it was, it was high turnover at the top. Um, I've been carrying weight for, for a decade, uh, had been, um, you know, never finding enough times in the day to do my work, let alone doing the exercise. So I basically decided that um, as I was at that time, um, mid to late 40s, I'm now 49, that I wanted to get fit again and um, recapture my my health before 50, um, and uh, and it's you know I'm about three years into that journey, and uh, marathon's sort of not the pinnacle, but it's part of that journey, and uh, I think that um, yeah, just trying to find that that balance part of part of uh, moving on from CCA and and um, resetting my career for what I see as the next and last 10 years of my career. Um, uh, is, is part of that journey to make sure I just didn't get bogged down in what, what has been great and then 
um, find myself getting sort of bitter and twisted and pushed out sort of, you know, um, in my mid-50s. So uh, I've seen that happen to a lot of people. They tie themselves to, to one job for life or one um, business and then they then they sort of get, uh, particularly in the industry as it is at the moment, they, they, they run aground and, uh, and don't refresh. So uh, I've taken that opportunity to refresh um, both physically and, and, uh, and career-wise as well. Well, James, look, uh, mate, I, I must say I appreciate uh, you coming along today. Um, you did say that um, speaking, uh, speaking out loud and, uh, and getting a photo taken is probably not two of your highest uh, things that you enjoy doing and, and you've, you've allowed us to, to do that with you today. Um, Mark, is there anything you wanted to ask uh, just in closing off uh, with James and uh, obviously um, you know, the next steps in his journey? Yeah, I was probably just curious, just listening to that. Have you got any thoughts at this stage of what your next steps are or you're letting serendipity take its place? Uh, well, I'm hoping that there's some employers listening to this podcast. But, uh, <laughs> there's plenty, there's plenty. <laughs> so I am, um, I, if, I, if the, old, the ultimate job if it fell on my lap tomorrow would be to, to be given an MD uh, or CEO role of a, of a small organisation. So... Um, Amateur is obviously a very, very large organisation. Uh, Peter West and, and Alison have to front, um, you know, large boards and also large shareholder groups in in, in their role. So uh, it was probably uh, I considered that a step too far for me over the next couple of years. So I'm keen to um, take a sideways step into a sales director role, which gives me that opportunity over the next couple of years, or or straight into that role um, where I think I can take all the various experiences I've had for the last 26 years and um, and make something of my own. Well, um, Fantastic. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, we, Mark and I wish you all the best, James. I do. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Um, it's been, you know, all the very best in your, your next in career path, chat, you know, um, and what that brings for you. And I'm sure that no matter where you land, you're going to uh, make uh, every post a winner with uh, that organisation. They'd be lucky to have you. And, um, yeah, hopefully the listeners have uh, enjoyed uh, listening through this uh, um, podcast today. And um, uh, we'll uh, look forward to catching with you next week and uh, taking you through uh, our next guest. Uh, thank you very much, James. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Mark. I can now add doing a podcast to my list of firsts. So it's, uh, it's been a great experience. Thank you. It has indeed. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, then. Cheers. Well, there we go. Um, actually, that was uh, amazing. I really enjoyed uh, our, our talk with James today. Um, you know, what were some of the key takeouts uh, that you've taken away from that, Mark? Well, the three things that stood out for me were, firstly, his uh, ability to step back to grow and his willingness to do that. Um, you could see that when he had a plum roll in Atlanta with the, the Olympic Games, uh, to, to then transplanting himself back into Sydney and, and starting off as a sales rep. Secondly, you know, he's very discovery-driven. You know, he, he's mastered the role of sales director and he's willing to take a leap, um, even though he's been at the top of the learning curve. And I think his bravery, you know, packing his bags on new work adventures three times while his wife was pregnant, he can still tell the tale. And I think that's uh, outstanding for him. What about you? Mate, I, I really enjoyed, uh, you know, understanding the roles of his mentors. Uh, mentors is a big part, uh, as you and I both know. And, uh, you know, really, um, and even, the, you know, starting from the streets, uh, being going back to a repping role to, to know that, you know, 
you know, they're the, they're the foundations that really make uh, sales managers, sales directors uh, understand, uh, you know, from coming from the bottom up. And uh, look, he's very you know, health driven, very health focused at the moment with his journey with his marathon. So, you know, that's, that just shows an internal dedication and, and focus, which, uh, you know, I really enjoyed that as well. So, um, yeah, I'd like to thank uh, our guest, uh, Mr. James Lane. And uh, with that, you know, we couldn't have done it without the production expertise of young gun Blake from Sydney. And uh, we'd also like to call out a special and a thanks to our creative partner, um, Ant May from Ant Designs, uh, Sydney's leading uh, digital agency. Well, um, you know, that's really put the bar pretty high for our other guests. And um, But uh, next week, uh, I'm sure we'll be a cracker. And uh, we're looking forward to that. No, I'm really looking forward to that, mate. So, till next week. <laughs>